0: We've been continually making our way through this uh, very uh, spot-on, relevant, uh, in-the-moment teaching from 1 Corinthians. There's been this little mini-series on uh, some subjects that are very relevant in terms of marriage and uh, intimacy and divorce and, and all the things, singleness that goes with that. And so we're going to do a little bit of a pause this morning, going to step outside of 1 Corinthians And we're going to look at what it, it, from my perspective, is at the core of the core of the core of married life. And we're going to take a look at it. Now, I want to pray before we jump into it and then bring you into where we're going to be headed this morning. Okay? Join me. Father, we um, always want to make sure, regardless of where we are and our our understanding of you and our relationship to you, that um, you have something... uh, uniquely designed for each one of us. And a part of that is this beautiful, remarkable relationship between a man and a woman in married life. And we thank you that you can speak to us in that. I know there's a lot of confusion in our day and time. And we're not here to pronounce judgment. Uh, We're not here to say things that would be offensive. We're just simply here to say, God, what's your best? And we don't want to miss that. So thank you for the messages over the past few weeks, and thank you for using Josh to speak into them in a, in a just genuinely compassionate and authentic manner, but truthful manner, grace and truth, and we thank you that uh, it's been challenging uh, as we've listened in. So this morning, open our eyes to see things that we need to see, hear things we need to hear, so that it can be transforming in each of our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. Last weekend, Gail and I um, were on the aftermath of celebrating forty-five years of marriage. St. Patrick's Day, March seventeenth. Um, we got married on March seventeenth, not because we're Irish, but it happened to be the Saturday before spring break in college, and so that's when we uh, we got married. Forty-five years. And recently, uh, I was introduced, and someone said, you know, they've been married 45 years. And we began to tabulate all the years of the people on staff who've been married here at our church. And they, together, they don't equal 45 years. So what he was basically trying to say, he's old. And um, so what I tried to kind of respond was, is, it's not old, it's vintage. There's a big difference between the two. And a lot of times when you think, wow, 45 years of, of marriage... You must really be an expert on this subject. And let me just say right up front, there are no experts when it comes to married life. There are only people who are continuing to learn and grow and want to become even more in marriage. There's no experts. Nobody can say, let me just tell you how it is. Uh, It's an ever learning student. And the reason I can say that is last weekend on Friday and Saturday, we were down in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Gail and I invited by one of our church plants to do a Married Life weekend. So on Friday and Saturday, we uh, shared our lives, our married life. Twenty-three couples were there. It was an incredible time. We had a great uh, experience together with them. And then on Sunday afternoon, we boarded a plane and flew to San Antonio, and we were part of a marriage conference where we sat and received from others so that we could learn and so that we could grow and it was an amazing experience for us. In fact, while we were in San Antonio, I don't know if you are very familiar with it, but there's this beautiful place, the Riverwalk, and as you're walking along, it's got all kinds of special uh, features to it, and restaurants, and we just enjoyed it. We took long walks every day. And every day, you know what we're talking about? Hey, we just heard some things we needed to hear. And some of the questions that we were asking ourselves were like, hey, where are we nailing it? Where, 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 are, we, where are we getting it good? And it comes to our married life. And we, we loved to talk about that. And we named a few things. And then we started moving into those areas where, well, where do we need some improvement? Where do we need to grow? And we were taking some of the things that we heard and some fresh, challenging thoughts. And, and the person who happened to be sharing with us was similar in age, but he was sharing out of his own experience. And then we heard uh, of a pastor, a very gifted pastor, several years ago. Uh, fact five or six years ago notable young pastor whose marriage fell apart even after he'd written a book on married life and he was there along with his wife talking about the restoration that they're going through in terms of their own marriage and ministry i share all that to simply say where we're going to be going this morning has everything to do with asking yourself Not only if you are in married life, where are you nailing it? Where do you need improvement? But to take a good hard look at what season you're in. And for those of you who have not entered into married life, this is a good time to begin to think about what you want in married life if God has that in mind for you. And so you can begin putting these things together. So it's kind of like a premarital counseling if you were to think of it in in that regard. So with that in mind, I want to jump right into the subject by thinking about your marriage in terms of, of where you are, what kind of season you are. You know, some of you right now, it's like yesterday. It was an absolutely gorgeous day, and you can say, hey, our married life right now, it is like gorgeous. It is just good. It's just good. It's kind of like, you know, I want to hold on to it. Others of you, when you start thinking about your married life, it's kind of like those highways out of the Midwest. People often ask me, "Said so where are you from? And people think I'm from Kentucky. I was actually born in Evansville, Indiana. I'm a Hoosier, whatever that is. And so, all right, nobody knows what a Hoosier is. I don't, not even Wikipedia knows what a Hoosier is. But as, as uh, if you go out in the Midwest, they have these long, flat highways. You go on and on and on, and there's no color. Maybe that's where your married life is right now. It's like just flat, no color. You just keep going. And some of you may be like in, in, down in Tennessee and Mississippi, there's, there's Tornado Alley. I mean, that's where your marriage is right now. I mean, the storms have just come out of nowhere, and you are trying to hang on for dear life. Not for sure what the outcome's gonna be, and you're asking yourself, how did we get here? And then there's some of you... Um, It's not that you're thinking of divorce, you won't get divorced, but you're you're married. It's like life in the Northeast, an unending winter. Uh, It is just cold. And maybe that's just kind of where you are right now. So as you're thinking about that, just hold on to that picture and start thinking about your married life or where you want your married life to be. But here's the truth of the matter. I think probably the big question that goes to married life as we intro it this morning, the big question is this. Not can I fall in love, because all you have to do to fall in love is a, a pulse. The big question is, can I stay in love all my life with one person? Can love at last sight be better than love at first sight? Is it possible? not just simply to fall in love just because of an attractive impulse, but the idea that at the end of your life, as you make your way through married life, it is sizzling instead of fizzling. And it's better than it was at the very beginning. Big, big question. Uh, One of the big enemies of married life And I want to just say this up front, because some of you might find yourself here, not intentionally, but it's just kind of where you are right now, because of the challenges, just life itself. One of the biggest enemies of married life is ordinary. Ordinary is, uh, it's it's an enemy, uh, a big enemy of great marriage. Ordinary is characterized by dissatisfaction, misunderstanding, and stale love. Ordinary is the birthplace of adultery. Ordinary is a place where divorce looks better than staying together. Ordinary is the subtle trap that convinces you that a marriage, that your marriage is as good as it is will ever get. Ordinary marriages lose hope. Ordinary marriages lose vision. Ordinary marriages get give in to compromise. Now I, I set all that up because what we're going to talk about this morning. It says you don't need an ordinary marriage. You want to fight for something, and the something is not extraordinary. It's the something that says, I want to experience all that God has in mind, and I will settle for nothing less in our marriage, and I'll fight for that. I'll fight for that. A part of our challenge when it comes to married life is that most of us have never seen a healthy marriage. We just haven't. I mean, you look around in your life and you're trying to pull somebody out, and you, you know, authentic, genuine, growing love, but you can't find one. And sometimes you go, well, well, I can go to the Bible. Be careful. If you ever start saying, I want a biblical family, I don't think you do. Adam and Eve, I don't think you want to go there. Abraham and Sarah, he threw under a bus twice to save his own skin. Job, his wife said, curse God and die. Great marriage. David and Solomon, we don't even need to talk about that. You really can't find a, a biblical example even because as uh, what we're going to see in just a marriage. You, you just can't seem to find it. And then kind of to add to that, our culture has a very low threshold for relational pain. The average marriage today lasts seven years because of... Of these personal emotions, a pessimistic outlook, and there's just this sense that, hey, married life isn't all it's cracked up to be. Tim Keller said it this way We come into our marriages driven by all kinds of fears, desires, and needs. Russ, Ross Duthat of New York Times put it this way While some Americans battle over what marriage should mean, much of the country may be abandoning the institution altogether. And then probably another big reality is that we enter into married life and we turn dreams into demands. Most everybody enters into married life with this ideal and that ideal has attached to it all kinds of expectations. This is what married life is supposed to look like, so this is what I'm expecting from you. That's why romantic movies only last 90 minutes. And here's the one that I want to just camp on for just a minute, underscore. Married life is messy. It just is. Every year our whole family tries to get together and we go on a big family vacation and we try to find one location that we can crowd everybody into a big house and Gail and my youngest son usually have the responsibility for doing that. And so what they do, they go on the website, look at all the places you all know about to try to find that place for us for an entire week. it will be 17 of us. And so we'll try to cram in. And so we want the place to be right if we're going to be together for a whole week. So Gail goes on the website and she looks at it and she pulls it off. And what do you see on the website? You see it at its best, Right. You see this gallery of pictures, you go, wow, this is great. And you look at all the amenities, this is great, this is great. But you don't know till you arrive if it's matching up to what's on the website. And for the most part, we've been pretty good. But two summers ago, we pulled up to this place that on the website looked like the most incredible place we would ever have. But it was awful. And for a whole week, we're together in awful. And that's sometimes the way married life is. It looked so good, the gallery of pictures. You got the ideas in your mind, and this is going to be incredible. And then you get inside, and you go, wait, this isn't what a... I, I, you know, what am I getting myself into if I'd known this before? I would have never done this. You start, all of a sudden, you start doing life together, and you look at this person, and you go, why is he so defensive? Where did that come from? Why is she so clingy? What is this simmering rage just underneath the surface? Where did that addiction come from? Who are you? And all of a sudden we see these ugly sides and here's the deal. Uh, You and I don't get to marry someone who's perfect. I came close. But every person is sinful, imperfect, and ego-centered. Marriage is about one sinner marrying another broken, flawed person. Dan Allender put it this way. We must never be naive enough to think of marriage as a safe harbor from the fall. The deepest struggle of life will occur in the primary relationship affected by the fall, which is married life. Now, I set all it up to say this. Marriage is a very delicate and demanding, perhaps, of all human relationships. But it also has the potential for an incredible, glorious delight. It does. And how can you experience it in that regard? So, with that in mind, I want us to look at first what Jesus had to say about it, take a core principle from him, and then we're going to listen to Paul The writer of 1 Corinthians, writing in another place, fleshing out what Jesus said, okay? You with me? All right, let's hear what Jesus said in John 13, verse 34 and 35. "'A new command I give you, love one another. "'As I have loved you, so you must love one another. "'By this all men will know that you are my disciples "'if you have love for one another.'" Jesus pulled his disciples on the night just before his own imminent death and he pulls them together and he said, Guys, I want to tell you something new. And then he starts talking. I'm sure the disciples were going, This isn't anything new. We've heard Jesus talk about loving one another, etc. What Jesus did here, though, was he took something very uh, descriptive, like a noun, love is, and we see places like that describe love all the time, and he turned love from a noun to a verb. And he's saying that love, at its essence, is not something you describe. Love is very proactive. It takes the initiative. It moves toward. Love is something, Jesus said, a choice that you make and you act out and live out. So what is Jesus saying to us? And this is kind of the first big idea of our our conversation this morning. Here's the first big idea when it comes to married life just creating a big picture here for us. First big thing is this. In your married life, make showcasing the love of Christ the goal of your marriage. Make showcasing the love of Christ the goal of your marriage. Too often when we step into marriage, we come into it with the idea that somehow or another that that person is designed to meet my needs, And I'm going to get at that in just a moment, but that person cannot meet your needs. What Jesus is demonstrating here and what he's saying to them and what he modeled as we're going to see is there has to be a settled commitment in your heart to the other person rather than to your own feelings and happiness. Mike Mason, who I'm going to show and re- make reference to throughout the, the morning's message, who perhaps, in my opinion, has written the best book on marriage from a Christian perspective. Here's something that he writes. And He wrote a book called The Mystery of Marriage, the book I just referenced to. He wrote the book, and it is journal entries that he made prior to getting married. And then he compiled it in a book. It's fascinating. But here's what he said about that writing. In fact, I was writing about my love affair with Jesus. I was writing my prayer life. My love for God got all mixed up with my love for Karen. It began to seem all the same, which indeed it is. Love is love. If we truly have the love of God, we will find that it spills over to everyone around us. First to those close to us and then out like ripples in a pond. My love for God got all mixed up with my love for Karen. Just echoes what Jesus said. Now, big principle. Okay, we got that. That sounds pretty daunting. Make showcasing the love of Christ the goal of your marriage. That seems like way impossible. What does that really look like? Well, let's move from Jesus to Paul. And we're going to look at a classic, theologically rich text that in the first century, Christ followers, they would sing often as a hymn. It was a creedal statement even. Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to uh, invite you to follow along with me, and this isn't just for married life, but specifically we're going to relate it to that, but all relationships. So let's look at what Paul writes. Here's he, write, by the way, he's writing to a group of people, community of faith, who have lost their laughter. You know, relationships have broken down, and he's trying to speak into that about how to restore, rekindle Those relationships. So, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 2. I'm going to do New Living Translation. I like the way it reads. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and one purpose. The idea, he's saying this, if you are in Christ, then Christ is in you. Then leverage all that you have in Christ in your relationship to others. Leverage all you have in Christ and have received from Christ in your relationship with each other. So he says, is there any encouragement in Christ? Does Christ bring about a certain sense of refreshment and breathe, breathe life into you? Well, leverage that in your relationships. Do you have any sense of comfort where someone... Fully gets you and understands you like the Holy Spirit does. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, he gets you, he understands you. Leverage that in your relationships with others, primarily in marriage. So what he's saying is, let everything happen within your marriage. Leverage, take full advantage of all you have in Christ. All you have in Christ. A few years ago, I was counseling a young man. They were probably eight, nine years in marriage. And we were going through a lot of challenges. And at the end of our conversations over several months, here's what he came to me. And he said about his married life. He said, I get it. If I keep growing in my relationship to Christ, then I'll be exactly who my wife needs me to be. He's right. He's right. So, so what is he saying there? saying, take all that you have in Christ, all that you are in Christ, and leverage that in your relationship with each other. Several years ago, uh, there was a movie that came out, I think it was five or six years ago, called Night and Day. It was actually filmed over two and a half months, and much of it took place here in Boston. And it featured Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz. And if, you, if you've ever seen the movie, there's scenes of the Zakim Bridge and there's some scenes at Bunker Hill. there's It's not iconic like Goodwill Hunting. It's not a classic. It's just one of those good Tom Cruise movies. He's a CIA agent that is kind of accused falsely and he's trying to defend himself and Cameron Diaz gets drawn into it and she's trying to get away from him. and finally there's this scene. His name is Roy, her name is June. and finally he gets gets a, the message across and he says to her, "Look, if you stay with me." This is where we'll be. This is with me. This is without me. With me, without me. You decide, June. With me, without me. And I think in a very similar way here, we have to understand within the context of married life, either with Christ or without Christ. You make the choice. And what Paul is trying to say here is leverage everything that you have in Christ with each other. Become intimate allies. And what happens when that happens? Here's the second primary truth this morning. You will begin to share a mutual commitment to grow in oneness. You'll begin to move toward each other instead of away from each other. You will marry someone who will either pull you toward Christ... Are away from Christ. There will either be this sense of this is who we are in Christ, and watch this for just a second. A lot of times we think this person I'm married, I'm gonna try to draw from them everything that I need. But think of it as a bucket. They have about this much in their bucket if you're expecting them to meet your needs. About this much. And guess how much you have in your bucket? About that much. And what does that mean? Neither of you have what it takes to meet the needs of the other. But think about it this way. If you're full of Christ and Christ is in you and you're drawing from who you are in Christ, you'll have everything to pour into the bucket that your wife needs you to pour into because it is coming out of who you are in Christ. And that will bring about a sense of Moving towards each other as you leverage that, as you grow in oneness. What's the enemy of of marriage? It's isolation. What's the goal of marriage? Showcasing the love of Christ. How does that happen? There is this sense of oneness where over time you don't lose your personal identity, but you actually become something brand new together. Brand new together. Let's go a little bit further. Verses three and four. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interest of others. He says, in a negative way, here are certain things that you don't need to don't, you cannot allow to be a part of your relationship with each other. Here are the things that are going to destroy your relationship. And he uses two words, rivalry, which means. You push forward while you push aside the other person. It means you have such disregard for the other person, perhaps even contempt, that you have zero concern for anything about them. It's all about you moving forward to get what you want. He's saying, don't push ahead, and in the process of pushing aside, push someone else aside. Selfish ambition. And then he says vain conceit. Vain conceit means... That there's this emptiness in yourself that you don't feel like you get enough attention. You don't get enough understanding. And it's always, 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 always about your fears, your concerns, your desires, your longings. And he says you got to get rid of both of those. In a sentence, what he's saying is for people to stay in love, I want you to get rid of. Did you hear what he's saying? I want you to get rid of all selfishness. Stop competing with each other. Stop competing with each other. When our youngest son was about ready to get married, we were sitting down and talking to him about what married life looked like. And at the end of the conversation, his statement to us was, but who's gonna take care of me? Who's gonna take care of me? To tell me you don't think about that in your married life. What about me? And what Paul's saying is, you got to get rid of that. Got to get rid of that. It's not about meeting your needs. Now, let let me give you a, I think every one of you can understand this. Anytime you ever take a picture with an iPhone or whatever device you use, when the picture is taken and they say, let me see it, question, and you're taking a group shot here, whose face picture do you look at first? Is not the other people, is it? It's who? How you look. And then kind of follow up it. How do you determine whether or not you're going to keep that picture? Right? Come on. If you look good, you're going to keep it. Right? If you don't look good, you're not keeping it. Gail and I, have through the years, we've decided which side we both look good on. So when we ever get pictures these days, she goes, are you on the right side? Or are you on the right side? It's It's crazy. Because that's just our inclination. And Paul is saying here, and I love this, he says, let each of you look out. It's a word, scopos, scope out. Be constantly on the survey, be looking out in humility with a general, deferential, constant awareness that someone else is of higher value. You put a higher value on the other person than you do yourself. I want you to constantly be scoping it out. So, what is he saying there? And here's the third truth for this morning. Remember, selfless living fuels growing relationships. It does. Put another way, you want more for your spouse than you want from your spouse. You want some more for, and that's what you're wrapped up in, than you want from your spouse. You are so dialed in to what interests them, and that's at the heart of relational closeness. What does that look like? It means you you listen with the intent not of being ready to tell them what you're thinking, but you're listening so you can hear what's really going on in their soul. That means that you are the first to initiate towards them when there's conflict, that you reach out, you extend genuine forgiveness. You give each other your best, not your leftovers. You ask questions like, hey, where am I doing, where, where am I serving you, uh, how am I doing as a husband, what are your fears, what's going on with you, are you okay, all those kind of conversations, what am I doing that's frustrating you, asking questions, responding, being there with and for them. There's a wonderful quote again from Mike Mason and I'm going to put this one up on the screen and I want you to I share this in almost every wedding ceremony I do. Here's what Mike Mason writes. What I'm saying is that there was a lot at stake as the wedding day approached. In fact, there was everything at stake. Never before had I felt that so much was riding upon one single decision. Later, I would discover very gradually it is one of the chief characteristics of love. It asks for everything, not just a little bit or a whole lot, but for everything. And unless one is challenged to give everything, one is not really in love. Powerful. So you're asking yourself, okay, I get it. Make showcasing the the love of Christ, the goal of marriage. I get that. I understand that we've got to leverage all that we are in Christ, that it grows out of our relationship to him. I get that, that, there's, that, that we've got to share a mutual commitment to grow in oneness. I, I get the whole idea that we've got to remember selfless living fuels, growing relationships. I get it, I get it, I get it. I'm hearing, I'm hearing, I'm hearing. But how can anyone ever live like that? Now let's read on. Verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I want you to see something here. Jesus is saying, I want you to change. I want you to have a different disposition as Christ followers in your attitude, outlook towards each other, how you relate to each other. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to And here's the final truth. I want you to approach your relationship to each other in the same way Christ approached his relationship with you. And how did he do that? Based upon these verses. Look at what he says. He set aside. He emptied himself. He poured out himself. He never played the God card to get his way. He emptied himself out. He set that aside. He entered into. He was with us. He took up. He became a servant. His primary role was that of a servant. Willing submission. So often when we start talking about submission in a marriage, we only think of it in one way, but but Paul was very clear in another writing where he said, "...submit yourselves one to the other." Out of reverence, regard for Christ. It is not one way submission. We both put ourselves underneath the other and we say to each other, I am here for you. And I am willing to take on any servant role I need to for you. He became a servant. He was consumed with that. Covered, colored everything that he did and so it should in our marriage. He poured out to the point of death, but not just death, but death on a cross. Humiliating. Let me ask you a question. How far was Jesus willing to go? He was willing to go to the point that it killed him. Jesus lost everything. Nothing short of laying your full life down in a sacrificial manner for your spouse is acceptable in married life if you want all God has for you. Let me put all this together. Listen to these words. Just listen, a paraphrase. Setting aside what I think I deserve making myself fully available without exception to my spouse, choosing to enter into his or her world, placing their concerns above my own, listening and responding to the cry of their heart and their needs to the point of personal sacrifice. That's the vision God has. That's married life at its best. And let me just challenge those of you who are single If you don't have that as your vision for marriage, don't get married. Because that's the vision. That's the challenge. That's the call. Not that it's going to happen over time, it's going to happen over a lifetime. you're, You're thinking about this and you're saying to yourself, Okay, this is at the core of the core. Yeah, absolutely. Because all the instructions, you can read every married life book. You can learn how to, to deal with conflict. You can learn how to deal with your finances. You can learn how to have a great sex life. You can deal with every kind of subject. And you can learn, learn, learn. But if you don't have this core at the core of your marriage, none of that matters. None of that matters. This is at the core of the core of the core. And Jesus modeled it beautifully for us. Now, let me pause here for a second and just say this. There are two words that should never go together, and that's domestic violence. Never. And I'm by no means suggesting here that anytime you're in a relationship, somebody's demanding and abusive, that that is acceptable. That's not acceptable, that's abhorrent. That's not what Paul's saying. He's using it in the best possible way you could imagine. And if you're in an abusive relationship, you need to get help. You need to get help now. You don't need to put it off. And you don't need to wait to say, this is not right. Now, let's wrap things up. You've been good to listen in. You're still saved. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I get it. It can't be done. I know my husband, I know my wife. Well, let me just tack on Jesus and Paul, Peter. I want you to watch this for a moment. First Peter 5, verse 5 through 7. Clothe yourselves, wrap yourself up. Let this be who you are, your identity. All of you, with humility toward one another, what Paul told us in Romans—I mean, uh, Philippians two. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God says this to you: If you want your married life to be all about you, have at it. But you're gonna—you're not going to just have challenges. God is actually going to be working against you. But He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time or in due time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What is Peter trying to say to us? He's saying, live this way. And it may not be right today. And it may take months. It may take years. But in due time, if you keep living like this, you keep pursuing this in due time, as you place yourself under his leadership... His strength will come through, and in due time, in due time, you hold on to that promising hope. You keep living this way. Well, you, you're saying, but what about in the meantime? And he, he talked about that too. What does he say? Cast all your unedited concerns on me, and I will lift you up. You've got this vision. Oh, this is what we this is where you are. It's So challenging, but you just keep believing what Jesus said and what Paul wrote to tease it out. And you keep moving in due time with that promising hope. And in the meantime, you take all those concerns and cast them on him. It's a lifetime. Oh, my goodness, it's worth it. You know, and I had some honest conversations this week. We talked about some things we had never talked about before. It's painful. We didn't want to really talk about it, though we did. We're 45 years into this. <laughs> and we're like, there's so much more. And we don't want to miss it. We don't want to miss it. Well, we came off the married life, the married retreat, marriage conference in San Antonio. Flew back to Nashville just so we could be with uh, one of our daughter, uh, with our daughter and her three kids and husband. So Friday, we saw our 14 year old granddaughter run in a regional state track meet and set a record, yay, raw. And then Friday night, we were at a talent show and watched our seven year old granddaughter, you know, just amazing. And yesterday, I watched my 11-year-old grandson play two baseball games, won them both, then lost the one that I wasn't there for, the guy that brings good luck to him. Last night, my flight from Nashville was supposed to leave at 747. They had mechanical problems. It left at 1212 instead. I landed at Logan this morning at at 342, got a Lyft driver and got to my apartment right about 5 o'clock this morning. So if I seem a little whatever, you understand. (laughs) And so, but here's the part that I want you to understand. We have such a calling to our kids and our grandkids. We do crazy things to be with them. And part of it means that Gail and I are going to be apart from each other. We know those seasons are coming. We hate it when it happens. But for the next 12 days, we're going to be apart from each other. That's a long time. We don't like it. So we're talking about all the things we've got to do. Well, I get up this morning and I'm, I'm ready to kind of, all right, here we go. This is, you know, for the day. And I open up uh, one of the cabinets in our, in our house. And wow, what's there? All of me misses all of you. All right, I'm good. And then one of our crazy little things that we've said over the years out of the classic Rocky movie. I got gaps, you got gaps. Wish we were together to fill those gaps. Now, why do I share that with you? Because we don't want to miss. Have we done a thousand things wrong. Oh, my goodness, yes. But we don't want to miss, and we're still pursuing. In fact, on the inside of our wedding band, and I've lost this three times. <laughs> I lost it once doing a crazy stunt for our youth pastor who said, hey, if we have so many, would you dive into our mud hole that we've made and in a suit? And I said, Sure. And I did, and I lost my ring in that big old meadow. Didn't think I'd ever find it. I have a great staff guy who the next day went out with a metal detector, and he found it. By the way, sometimes you need other people to help you. Get counseling. Counseling doesn't mean you've got problems. Counseling is just a smart thing to do for every couple. Uh, Another time I lost it, (laughs) I was cleaning out the gutters at our house. got lost in the gutter and i go guess yeah. I, I lost it it's done it's over and she went out and she worked and worked and she found it sometime in your married life the other person isn't where you are you just got to unilaterally go for it in the hopes that perhaps somewhere along the way they'll come around and you'll be ready when they do Third time I lost it, I couldn't figure out where in the world was my ring. And I started doing a backtrack. And I went, uh, I was agile enough then to play softball. And I went and I thought, better, maybe in my glove. And sure enough, it was stuck in my glove. Sometimes what you have to do is you have to go backtrack and say, how did we get here? and be honest enough about the conversations. But on the inside of this ring is the key. Gail had inscribed these words 45 years ago. Always three. Always three. It was Christ at the center. So on our wedding day, may not have seemed like, uh, I don't remember a thing we said, but I do remember the songs that we sang. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need, thy tender care. Gentle shepherd, come and lead us. That's the clue. That's the answer. That's the challenge. Fight for it. Don't settle for anything less. Fight for it. It's worth it. And someday you'll have these things all around your house. And you'll be able to enjoy the beauty of all God has for you. In Christ. That's the key. Let's pray together. Father, we can't get enough of you and your word and um, take what we've shared today. Drive home the truth that life, married life is messy and we're imperfect and we need your saving grace, Lord Jesus. Without you in our lives, we keep trying to fix each other and we can't do it and we make a bigger mess. But by your grace in our life, with your love, filling us a steadfast, faithful, unfailing, forgiving, forbearing love. And if we make that the, show, the, the, the the goal of our marriage, then we're moving in the right direction. But it begins by having a personal relationship with you. And I would pray that every person here today would be honest about where they are in their relationship to you. And today, even the quietness of the heart, they say, I need to experience God's love first. And I need to receive what Christ did on that cross when he stepped down, 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 and he died that horrible death on the cross, rose again. I want his life to become my life. And Father, for all of us who are Christ followers, maybe we forgot that in married life, the heart of it is leveraging all we have and have received from you to give ourselves away in your name to that one who was created with us and mine. And we will praise you and thank you as we keep fighting for this incredible, wonderful, glorious delight called marriage. In Jesus' name, amen.